Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. This is the first of our five-part series with executive producer of The Trade, Pagan Harleman. Pagan has produced documentaries on Chicago, Miles Davis, and Bob Dylan. Her latest work, The Trade, is a timely five-episode docuseries revealing the grim realities of the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the growers, the addicts and their families, cartel bosses, and law enforcement. In our five-part podcast series, we'll get an introduction and backstory on each episode from Pagan, followed by interviews with subject matter experts on issues related to each episode. In this episode, we'll be talking with Franklin County Sheriff's Department Chief Rick Minard and Senator Sherrod Brown about stopping the flow of illicit drugs into our country through our border with Mexico. Next, we'll talk with Jen Walton, whose unfiltered first-hand account of her two sons' struggles with heroin addiction and her family's attempt to help them are featured in the first episode of The Trade. We begin with Pagan Harleman. Pagan, it's great to be here. Thank you. It's wonderful to speak with you. Okay. So you tell the story of the opioid epidemic through the eyes of members of drug cartels, law enforcement officers, addicts, and their families. I want to talk a little bit about how you selected each of them to tell their story. It was always our goal um, to have three storylines. And, you know, we talked about this as a sort of real life traffic in the sense of looking at the drug trade through the prism of heroin with three perspectives. So the growers and the smugglers in Mexico, some element of law enforcement, and then addicts and their families. So we always started out with the general goal of coming at it from three angles. Um, It took quite some time to find access in terms of law enforcement. We, um, pretty early after I joined, we we focused in on Ohio just because it's ground zero for so much that's happening with the opioid epidemic. And we spoke to a number of Departments, And, you know, it's real tricky with law enforcement nowadays in terms of uh, allowing cameras to come and film because it's it's a very sensitive time for law enforcement. And so obviously some people had concerns, but we were lucky enough to meet um, Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Minor, uh, Deputy Sheriff Rich Minor. Franklin County in my state. Yes. Oh. And, and he was open from the beginning. And he said, you know, he believed in his team. He believed in what they were doing. Um, and he said, you know, I, I think this is important and I want to tell the story. So we began to collaborate with him. And, and once we, we met his team, we were very interested. We were always interested in being able to give some element of hope. So the fact that they combined law enforcement with like what he calls a bit of social work in terms of outreach was interesting to us from the beginning. Um, We also had to work on getting access through Homeland Security um, to more federal cases. And then in terms of addicts and their families, that was a really months long process of finding and talking to many, many people until we found people who were really ready to let the cameras be around full time. 
So you also focused many of your scenes in Guerrero, is it, Mexico? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you were embedded with a drug cartel. Wow. How did that happen? Okay, well, so I should say, because most people, I think, most Americans don't know m that much about Mexico. No. Um, so Guerrero is one of the poorest areas in Mexico, um, one of the poorest provinces. It's also one of the most violent currently. Um, Mexico just underwent its, its deadliest year for violence. About um, 400 miles south of the border, I think, just south of Mexico City. Is that where it's located? Guerrero, it's, uh, yeah, just south of Mexico City. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, so, but it is the, the largest poppy growing region in the country. And that has to do with the altitude and just, you know, the soil and that particular area is, is very, um, is Climate it, it's, it's a place that where it, it's easy to grow poppy and there's not a lot of other industries. So many farmers, you know, they, they told us they would grow avocado, they would grow corn, but because there's so little industry and the, and the government doesn't really invest in that area, they've turned to poppy. And that's exploded over, poppy growing actually started um, right after World War II, but it's exploded in the last 10 years. Um, and so we... We, um, we started, we, when we were first in Mexico, we, um, we looked at a couple of different places to film and it, it was challenging, but in Guerrero we went and we started to meet with the growers and we formed some relationships and once we saw that they were open to sharing their story, you know, we embedded there. Um, I should say our main character there, Don Miguel, he views himself as a community leader. Let me ask you, Pagan, did you fear for your life while filming the scenes in Guerrero? I should say, I did not go to Guerrero, Mexico. We had a, a field team, Miles Esty, um, who is a journalist who had been living in Mexico for eight years. And he had already filmed in Mexico with the director, Matt Heinemann, um, for Cartel Land. So he was pretty experienced shooting in Mexico in challenging situations. Um, and he was there with two different uh, cinematographers, Max Price and Ross McDonald. And then we had a local producer, Alejandro Suversa. So, so we had like a three-person team there in Mexico, um, and there were inherent risks in what they were doing. We tried to minimize them as much as possible. Um, you know, we only shot with people who we felt, um, you know, we had an understanding of sort of what it worked and that, you know, our team's lives weren't going to be at risk unnecessarily. But, you know, having said that, the situations that they're in, there's always inherent risk because the people they're working with are at risk. So um, do you want me to go back and explain a little bit about sort please. of how we chose Guerrero? Yeah, okay. So we always knew that we wanted to film in Mexico, and part of that came from the director, Matt Heineman. He shot in Mexico and America for cartel land. It was two set of vigilante groups. And during the course of that, he felt like he really wanted to explore more about the drug trade. And so in the beginning, we were looking at shooting in other areas in Sinaloa, and it was very challenging. And then Guerrero is where most of the poppy is produced that comes to the U.S., and the, um, it's exploded there in the last 10 years just because of demand. So we, the, um, we did some outreach in Guerrero, and we saw that the growers there were open to telling their story. They very much feel that this is what they're growing because it's the only industry that they have to support their families, and they, they didn't have any issues with sharing it. And then we made inroads to Don Miguel, and he he thought it would be valuable to, his, to share his story. So then once those relationships were sort of formed and we saw that they were comfortable and they would let us film we decided, you know, to continue filming, and we filmed there for a number of months. I found it really fascinating, the fact that they seemed to treat that, their attitude, their approach to it, was almost like a farmer farming corn in our country. I mean, they, I wouldn't say they're, they're completely without concern, because, you know, a number of times they would say, you know, we know this is a drug, we know people are dying of it, you know, we don't feel good about that. But they also felt like they weren't making anybody take the drug. 
And they were like, we need the government to invest in something else, people to pay us more for avocados or corn. You know, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very poor area. There's a lot, you know, not running water in some of the places in Wood, Florida. It's not by any means a lush. Um, and most of the growers even now growing poppy. It's not like they're living high on the hog. You know, it's pretty, pretty minimalist there. Um, so I wouldn't say that they're completely without um, some misgivings, but they've accepted that this, these are the choices that they have. I mean, it, I think of it a lot like what David Simon said when he was working on the wire, which is people work with the economy they're given. So if you're an African American in the inner city and you don't have support and you don't really have much being offered to you at school and what you're given is, you know, dealing drugs, you work with that because you need to survive, you know, and the director, Matt Heineman often says, these are people who are trying to make rational choices in an irrational world. You know, and I would agree with that. Like, it's, it's easy to judge, but like, if you were there and you had a bunch of kids and you had to feed them, what would you do? So, you know, we tried to, we tried to never judge our characters as much as understand the choices they're making and, and look for their humanity. And that, that went for the addicts and the growers. Yeah. Don Miguel, interesting character, larger than life seems to be like uh, an ambassador, if you will, for their community. Is there a backstory there, an interesting backstory to share? Um, I can tell you what he says about himself. He, he, he says that you know, he grew up very poor in woodworking and that he moved into sort of what he calls being a community leader after his family was attacked. Um, you know, and then he saw that um, he felt he needed to protect not just his family, but the community. Um, you know, and th- th- that was a choice that was sort of pushed upon him, that if he didn't protect people, um, then that he wouldn't be safe, his family wouldn't be safe, and the community around him wouldn't be safe. And I will say, in Guerrero, listen, who controls the flow of poppy controls the area. And so there's a number of groups that are always fighting, and that's what makes it so violent. And there's very little... Um, you know, there's very little sort of oversight from the government. So much like when I shot in Chicago, frankly, we saw the same thing, which is that the the police had made an effort to get rid of a lot of the top gangs back in the day, you know, starting in the 70s. And now it's, it's block to block, it's click to click. And in some ways, that's more challenging for people than having one head person who really controls things. So in Mexico, you know, since, um, you know, Miles, uh, our producer, could speak to it more, but as, as a lot of the cartels or the infrastructure fractures, it's actually more dangerous because there's a lack of control. You okay. know? And as poppy production grows and the money with it grows, the violence has been increasing as well. Yeah. And the reference to shooting in Chicago was the Chicagoland uh, production yes. that you worked on. Yeah. My heart really went out to Skyler's mom, um, Jen, as she and her husband tried to support a Skyler in the best way that they could in uh, that opening episode there. Um, of the thousands of families that struggled to survive daily with this disease in our country, why did their story stand out to you, Pagan? Well, first I have to celebrate Jen Walton because from the beginning, um, we, we found her actually through like a, a support group on the web. And from the beginning, she said, I want to share my story. I think it's important. She said, you know, there's a whole stigma around this and the silence and the anonymity is, is part of what's allowing it to, to, you know, the problems to continue. And she very much believes that people need to share their stories. You need to get past the stigma. And so from the beginning, she, she was an open door. And I, there's no family who gave us as much access as, as she did. And I, as a parent myself, I think that's very challenging because um, 
there is a certain amount of shame, you know, when you have, or there can be when you have a child who's struggling and you can feel like, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, what happened? And you certainly, if you're, you know, member of the middle class, you feel like, oh, you know, are people going to judge me or what are they going to say? You second guess yourself. You second guess yourself. And she, she's moved well past that. And she very much feels, I need to share my story. I want to help other parents. And also like, you know, we cannot move or grow or change as long as we're holding these stories within us. And so I just, you know, I have to celebrate her because from the beginning, she embraced filming. She was very honest. She was very forthright with us. And and that's what allowed us to film in the way that we did with her, you know, and it was very, it was very courageous, I feel. So you focus much of the series in my home state, Ohio, and uh, it's known by many as the epicenter of the epidemic. But every law enforcement agency in uh, actually in the, in the United States is uh, really dealing with this crisis. So why the Franklin County Sheriff's Office? I mean, I did uh, reach out to a number of um, cities and a number of um, departments in Ohio, and I had the chance to shoot in other locations. But, you know, Columbus, the Franklin County Sheriff's Office was unique for us because, A, we had already spoken with Homeland Security and we had inroads there in terms of a federal team that we could shoot with as well because we wanted to, in episodes three and four, we focus on a federal investigation. We wanted to show, we wanted to to sort of work our way up. If you see in episode one, we start with a traffic stop. It's the most banal thing. You know, many people go through a traffic stop, but you see in the course of the traffic stop how they find the heroin, how they use a tip to get to a dealer from that dealer. So we wanted to show people how you work your way up the chain and how law enforcement works. The building blocks there. Right. And so, so with Franklin County, with Columbus, we, we had access through minor to the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. And then we also were in discussions with Homeland Security about working with them, um, with a team that, that handled federal cases. And that combination and the fact that the Franklin County Sheriff's Office had this HOPE unit um, and the people that we met on it really made us think, well, this is, you know, an amazing story and we want to work with this unit. And, you know, we were very, very happy that we made that choice. Let me ask you something about that stop, the traffic stop that you mentioned. Um, the two kids in the back seat of the car there, and one of them tells the officer that that white powder on the floor was stuff from candy or something. Mm-hmm. Was, was she covering for her mom? I mean, I would have no idea. Yeah. Okay. I, That's I kind of the way that it struck me. Yeah, I mean, was. you know, what I what I can tell you is that the mother has passed. The mother in the traffic stop uh, died of an overdose. Um, so, you know, uh, and I'm not I'm not sure what's happened you know, with a family or with the kids. But um, a number of people we filmed with, we've learned, you know, since then have, have overdosed. Wow. Not, not any of our main characters, I should say, but people who sort of, you know, people who we we met in the course of following the Franklin County Sheriff's Office and their investigations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was, I think for many people, I can tell you from my team in Columbus, which is Brent Kunkel, amazing producer, and Peter Hutchins, the stuff with the kids was just heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can become sort of jaded about some of this potentially, but that's, nobody gets over that. In episode one of The Trade, we see scenes from Franklin County Sheriff's Office Chief Rick Minert's visit to the Mexican border in El Paso, Texas. We sat down with Chief Minard to hear what he learned. It was a unique opportunity to get an oppor- uh, to get the chance to go down to uh, the southwest border. Uh, went down there with representatives from not only our office, but with uh, Homeland Security Investigations and the DEA. And uh, it gave us an opportunity to go down there and see the challenges that they face down there at the uh, points of entry 
the way the border um, in some places are is secured in areas where it is not secured. And so um, it was eye-opening, uh, to be quite honest. Um, there were sections of the uh, border that is unsecured. Uh, there were rural areas where a number of crossings take place. Um, but what was really even more eye-opening was the points of entry. And so what you saw there was literally six, eight lanes of traffic wide of bridges that were coming from Mexico into the United States. And what you saw was uh, a number of uh, commerce vehicles. Um, and so I, I think the number was anywhere from 30 to 35,000 vehicles come across that bridge in the United States um, every day carrying different uh, types of commerce and things of that nature. So basically what's happening is, is the uh, cartels are capitalizing on uh, what makes America great. And, and, you know, and that is our trade. Um, so it was, it was really eye-opening to see the challenges that they face down there um, and see how uh, Customs and Border Patrol um, desperately needs more help down there. And of that massive volume of vehicle traffic that goes through every day, they're only able to inspect 8 to 10%, they said. Right. So it's like uh, finding a needle in a haystack. And so um, a lot of cursory searches. And so not every vehicle that comes across gets searched. But what happens is, is uh, they're looking for indicators and things of that nature um, as vehicles come across there from the drivers, the vehicles, the way they're packaged uh, or um, loaded in the vehicle. Um, if there are trail cars, things that, like that is what they're looking for. And so when they, when they spot some of these red flags or these indicators, then they divert that traffic over into um, an area where they can do uh, a closer inspection. And they do have some great technology down there with x-rays and all of that. And of course, canines. Um, but, uh, you know, the drug cartels are, are, are pretty savvy. And so the way they package drugs, the way they pack it into like the roofs of, of, uh, of semi-trucks um, really was eye-opening in, in terms of the amount of uh, traffic that comes in now the United States. Yeah. And there's also foot traffic. Sure. A great deal right yeah, there in El Paso. Yeah. There's uh, border crossings down there that um, bridges that are just for foot traffic to go back and forth. And so what I didn't know is um, it is not illegal um, in, in, uh, in, in, for Mexico when their citizens illegally cross into the United States, are caught, and then deported back into Mexico. They, they face no sanction once they get back into their home country. That's different than here in the United States when, as a United States citizen, if you cross the border and into Mexico illegally, and then you are deported back into the United States, you face sanctions when you come back here. And so um, it was really eye-opening down there too. And then, I mean, the challenges they face, uh, other countries uh, that are south of Mexico where folks um, illegally cross into Mexico and then use Mexico as a, as a pass-through to then um, you know, migrate into the United States when those people are deported, they can't be deported back to Mexico. They got to be deported back to their home country. And so that's a challenge, too, because some of those people, because they know it's not illegal in Mexico, they claim to be Mexican citizens when, in fact, they're not. They're you know from El Salvador or these other countries, maybe uh, you know Colombia or what have you. And so they claim to be Mexican because they know that if they get deported back into Mexico, that they can turn around in a day or a week later, try that cross again. And so... It is, uh, 
is eye-opening as far as the uh, the challenges they face down there uh, in terms of securing the borders. Chief Minard went on to share his observations both from the ground as well as from a helicopter up in the air. Right, absolutely. And so, yeah, we were down there. Of course, we you know we, we met with a lot of the drug task forces, um, heard some of the challenges they faced there with uh, uh, st- uh, stash houses that are on the on the American side of the border. Explain where, a stash house. Um, What's a stash house? So large amounts of drugs come across the border. Um, they get stored in, because um, there's little neighborhoods all over down there in, in places like um, El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. And so those down along the border, it's littered with um, just small houses. Some of them are furnished. Some of them are not furnished, but they're basically stash houses where large amounts of drugs come across the border. But from there, they're cut up and then distributed to di- different places across the U.S. Some of it, some of it going up the West Coast, some of it going up through the Midwest, some of it going north and then coming back down, you know, through places like Detroit and Chicago through Columbus and into places like Philadelphia and Detroit, uh, Baltimore mm-hmm. and places like that, you know, source cities on, or I'm sorry, uh, um, cities on the East coast. So, mm-hmm. um, but these stash houses are where, where large amounts of drugs are basically divided up and then shipped throughout the United States. Um, so we got to see in basically small distribution centers that are run out of houses down there that are, that are organized with, uh, uh cartels that are on the, on the American side of the border. And so we got to see that obviously the points of entry and the commerce that come in, but, uh, you know, the border and where it's secured in places and some place, some places, frankly, it's not secured at all. You can literally walk right across the border. Um, really, you don't even know where the border is. Um, you know, if you're not, if you're not paying attention, you know, there, you know, lack of signage and things like that. And, uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was really eye opening to see the challenges down there, um, but yeah, helicopter flyovers uh, in the documentary they would not allow uh, Customs and Border Patrol for security reasons would not allow the uh, the cameraman from the documentary crew on the aircraft, and so and why is that? Um, they they, they just they yeah they weren't well right they weren't vetted um, and just for. For security, national security reasons, they they wouldn't let them on there. So, um, yeah, the camera crew asked that uh, that maybe we could take some uh, some cell phone video. And so, some of the shots that you see from the aerial shots down there on the border was uh, was actually uh, my work. So maybe I have a future in in, uh, <laughs> in cinematography. Who knows? So another interesting point that you brought out when we were talking there was um, people, truck drivers, they get recruited. Uh, against their will. How's that work? Yeah, and so we, we, we got to speak to uh, some of the, the folks down there that are working along the border uh, and some of the stories that we heard and some of the, the, the uh, examples that we seen down there were, um, as I mentioned, the commerce coming to the United States. And so we saw uh, one example I'll give you is uh, um, a uh, semi-truck that um, there were, you know, kilos that were loaded in the roof of the truck that were um, sealed um, basically in the metal in the metal roofing of the truck and so because of the way they were sealed because of the distance from the ground uh, it was hard for canines to detect that and so this in this particular case um the x-ray was was able to identify that but what we what we heard from as a result of that is how the mexican cartels exploit everyday working people in their own country uh, through threats of violence um, threats against their families and so they take advantage of people who have legitimate paperwork who are legitimate drivers who are are just trying to earn a living um in the trucking industry and so their families are threatened or or they are uh bribed into transporting large amounts of narcotics into the united states and so 
Um, they're not only expo- exploiting our borders, but they're exploiting their own their own people. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a population down there that uh, is struggling um, in their own right. And so, it, it really is. Uh, it's a you know, it's an international or it's a, a national problem, but it's an international issue as well. Sure, that's just amazing, absolutely amazing. So let's talk a little bit about Trump's wall. Is that going to work? Well, regardless of where you stand politically, um, I, I I think the idea of a wall um, will help in some areas. Um, some of the illegal uh, crossings that take place down there, which there are a lot of them, as I mentioned, there are some areas that are just, there is no. There's no wall. There's no, there's nothing. I mean, you literally, uh, one day we were, th- we were out there and there was a, uh, a small contingency of, of folks that came up on a bus. They got out of their bus and, uh, I was thought I was being friendly. I was going to walk over and introduce myself and say hello to them. They seemed like friendly people. And we were with a, uh, a customs and Bo- border patrol agent who basically stopped me in my tracks and said, don't go any further. If you cross, you know, that line, which I couldn't even tell there was a line there. Um, you will have broken federal law, so don't go over there. And so, you know, of course, I stepped back and didn't do it. But, um, but yeah, the wall itself, uh, I think it will help in some of the some areas as, as far as illegal immigration that takes place. But as far as the impact that it will make on the drug trade specifically, um, I, I don't know that it'll have uh, far-reaching effect because um, I think most of the drugs that are smuggled into the United States are done through commerce. Uh, quite frankly. I mean, a lot of it is through body carriers, people who load their body up with um, kilos and they cross the border. And you see a little bit of that in the uh, in the trade, the documentary there, but uh, it's a lot of vehicle traffic as well carries uh, um, is a way that uh, uh, large amounts of drugs are, are smuggled in the United States. So on January 10th of this year, President Trump signed the Interdict Act beginning a program that provides U.S. Customs and Border Protection with enhanced chemical screening devices and scientific support to detect and intercept fentanyl and other synthetic opioids from crossing the border. So I'm excited that here to share with us how this new program is going to better protect our borders is one of the bill's sponsors, Senator Sherrod Brown. So once again, Senator, thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on and thanks for the work you're doing uh, to honor your son, Greg. Thank you so much. So Senator Brown, you're one of the sponsors of the Interdict Act, which was a bipartisan bill to help detect and stop the flow of illicit drugs into our country. So can you tell us a little bit about how that's going to work? Yeah, it's, um, of course, we we need to focus on a number of things. One is obviously scaling up, doing better with prevention and education, scaling up treatment in communities uh, from, you know, from Cleveland to Cincinnati, from Toledo to, to Athens. But um, our legislation, the Interdict Act, which the president signed recently, does does this. The the um, the companies that create these devices recently visited my office and showed members of my staff how these detection devices work. Uh, they're, they're handheld devices about the size of a thermos. Agents can carry in the field uh, to rapidly identify a wide range of illegal drugs or chemical analogs on the spot, help, helping workers make informed decisions about whether the package they're searching or a substance they see as a threat. The device has a different chemi- database of different chemical substances, whether, as you said, it's it's fentanyl or heroin or cocaine or carfentanil or other narcotics. A sensor is held up to this substance in question, and in about a minute, the device 
returns results about what it is and if it's a threat. And the, that one minute uh, time period is really important because it, it, we just we probably couldn't have made this happen, couldn't have got this bill through if it, if it weren't something that could be detected quickly. Uh, the library can be updated to include additional chemicals. When a threat's detected, uh, CBP staff and scientists will take a closer look at what's inspected. This will stop more drugs at our borders before they reach neighborhoods in Ohio. It will protect agents in the field because they're physical contact with unknown substances is, becomes much more limited with these devices. Uh, and that's what the Interdict Act was about, to provide these devices to people, um, to, to agents. So right now, according to an episode, actually the first episode of The Trade, they went down to El Paso and talked about how much traffic is coming through at our Mexican border. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 32,000 or more trucks and cars per day. And they said that they're able to just intercept and, and uh, interrogate 8 to 10 percent of those. Is this going to expand that, this new technology, Senator? Yeah, it, because because of how I described it earlier, because it's handheld, because it's small, because it moves quickly, it won't increase in any measurable way, any uh, important way. It won't increase congestion at the border, so they can that you know commerce can move back and forth across the border, which is important, uh, and making sure though that that these that these cargo packages or individual truckers or whatever, however it comes in, will not be slowed at the border, but we can detect if they in fact have fentanyl or carfentanil. Um, the question though is getting this implemented as soon as possible. Uh, commissioner, um, the, the CPB commissioner agreed to work with me on this particular issue. He said at our confirmation hearing technology to both identify fentanyl and shipments and to test it effectively is absolutely essential to successful interdiction. That's, that's the reason for the bill. And our focus is to get this implemented as quickly as possible. So that percentage of 8 to 10% inspection goes up dramatically. So earlier in this episode, we talked with Franklin County Sheriff's Office Chief Rick Minard, whose tour of the border uh, with Mexico featured in the first episode. In that tour, he talked about some of the challenges that we faced in protecting the border. And it's just, it, it seemed overwhelming. So obviously, interdict is going to be a big part of the solution. Do you think President Trump's proposed wall would also be a part of that solution? Well, I, I've not heard any drug experts tell me that the wall is, is key to this. What's key to this is to have the money available to buy enough of these machines, these detection devices to have bore. I mean, this is a, this is a human being problem, and you want, you want everything from helicopters. You want the technology there, helicopters and, and agents and with these screening devices. Um, it's, Congress has agreed to invest $6 billion in the opioid epidemic as Congress doles out this money. Specifically, some, again, will be education and treatment or education and prevention. Some of it will be money that that is used to scale up treatment facilities, um, whether it's medication-assisted therapy or counseling or a host of things. Some of it we're going to work to get money directly into the Interdict Act 
um, to fund that so there is um, that, that these agents, so that there are enough agents and enough uh, enough uh, monitoring devices, screening devices, um, to detect this fentanyl, car fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, other other addictive substances coming through the border. So to me, it's the the, the wall's not going to fix that. What's going to fix that is spending the money to get these devices in the hands of agents, so we really can inspect these packages when they're coming into our country. Next, we'll talk with Jen Walton, whose story was featured in episode one of the trade. Jen has two sons who are addicted to heroin. The show gives an unfiltered, first-hand account of her sons, Skylers and Avery's, struggles with heroin addiction and her family's attempts to help them. Also joining me in this segment is Robin Starr. Robin is a family coach who specializes in evidence-based methods to empower parents to best support children who are struggling with substance use disorder. Skylar and Lena um, have been together. Um, we sometimes call them our Bonnie and Clyde. Um, they've been together for quite some time, uh, around 2011, 2010 or 2011. Um, they got together and they have just been on this hamster wheel downward cycle for quite some time. Um, about the same time that Skylar and Lena got together is really when I learned of Skylar's um, drug addiction. And um, it was quite alarming. It was quite alarming. Um, you know, from my standpoint and in my age, um, you know, when I was in high school, it was, it was marijuana and, you know, occasionally some acid or, or something. Um, and so when I heard that Skylar was dabbling in heroin, you know, only rock stars did that when I was in high school. Um, huge. In the 80s. Same here. That's my life experience as well in high school, college. Mm-hmm. That was a huge social barrier. There was no one, I mean, no one that you knew of that would use Right, right. It, it was only rock stars, and it was, um, you know, it was quite alarming because of the the, um, the gravity of it. I mean, I just didn't know anyone was um, involved in, in such deep um, drug addiction. I, I really didn't even know what heroin was um, or, or how bad it could get. Again, it was just a rock star. Um, so I, I was quite alarmed. Um, needless to say, and and it started, to be honest with you, it started from pills. Um, it started in the family medicine cabinet, and that's, you know, a lot of times where it does start. Um, Skylar was an avid skateboarder, um, had quite a, quite a dream life, if you will, as a high schooler, had a job at the local skate shop, um, fell and broke numerous bones, and it didn't take Skylar long to learn that, um, you know, the happy, fat, the happy, sad face chart when you go to the hospital, if you point face, you're going to get an opiate-based medication. Um, and it didn't take him long to figure that out. Um, so, so that's kind of where it started. It started in 2010, 2011-ish. So he was working um, the doctor, though, from an early age then, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were in the hospital for, you know, kidneys hurt, and I read I have a kidney infection, and, you know, just all over the map. And, and each time his little finger would go to the 10, sad face, the crying face, because he knew what that would get him. Yeah. So early on, you know, the families get sucked into this and well, unknowingly get brought along. So early on, you were kind of sucked in with supporting this whole thing, bringing him to the doctor and everything. And well, yeah, he must need it and, and not seeing uh, it. Of course. 
to. Absolutely. You know, as a parent, you don't want to see your child in pain and, and broken bones. That's very painful. So the first thing a bear does is make my child not hurt. And what's, what does that take? And, you know, we were trained as, you know, my entire life, I was trained that if the doctor said take this, then you take it. And if it's going to take your pain away, then I want it. Um, had no idea of the road we were um, beginning to travel at the time. And I think Skylar did either. I really don't. Um, when the pills run out and um, doctors start to get to know you and, um, you know, you kind of get into the cycle, uh, where is one to go? Well, you start buying pills, and that's extremely expensive. Um, so we turned to heroin. I'm not sure if he snorted it or smoked it or just went straight to the needle. Um, but eventually, he went to the needle. When was that? I would say my earliest recollection of that is probably 2013 to 2014. Okay. Um, that's, that's pretty much when I knew we had a big problem. That's when I started um, looking for help, resources, and I really, um, really came up with, with not many options. Um, at that point, there was no um, parity laws uh, that would treat mental health and drug addiction the same. In fact, coverage at the time would not treat or cover any type of substance use disorder. So what did you we do? We were kind of um, lost. Yeah. I started, um, I started researching, and I actually went to Facebook. You know, in, in 2013, 2014, Facebook was, you know, growing by leaps and bounds, and my age started joining in, and, you know, I, I'm sure some people had fun. I used it for research, and I found many, many groups um, that, that were going through the same thing, and they were all closed secret groups because there's such a large stigma surrounding this whole epidemic um and and you know it's it's not glamorous by any means I mean, the last thing you want to do is stand around the water cooler at your office and say hey my kid's addicted to drugs and we can't get help and i don't know what to do that's not typically the conversation anyone looks to have yeah clearly it is not glamorous and certainly the scenes of skyler and his girlfriend in the hotel room they display that in graphic means, don't they? And I have to tell you, honestly, people from watching the trade come to me and they're like, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. Um, and I'm like, I think you haven't scratched the surface of how bad it can get. That was light. So um, it's alarming. I, I understand why there's a stigma, but um, I hope by doing the show and by putting out there what we did and what was captured that it, it and say, oh, you know, someone that was afraid to stand up and say, I need help. I hope that they'll know that they're not alone and they can get help. Help is out there. Recovery is real. And, you know, where there's life, there's hope. So that's that's what I'm praying. So just from the show being out there. Yeah. You've taken a very active role in your son's recovery. And um, with it, it, that's had to have been just so difficult. I mean, it's, it's tough to, to watch some of those scenes. I mean, it's very difficult. And you've got no formal training in this. You're just thrown into this. Is that right? 
I am just a mom that doesn't want to see her son go through this. Um, I don't believe that anyone wants to live this way. No one, no one, you know, grows up at 12, 13, 14 going, you know, let's go be a drug. That just doesn't happen. Um, I think it happened quite by mistake. Um, and I don't believe that you can get sober or clean by yourself. I think it takes a community and by all means, it starts with the family. Um, which is very difficult because the um, the disease is so uh, relentless and and so frustrating and um, it, it's just yeah I have no formal training I'm just doing the best I can and I've made a lot of mistakes and we've learned a lot along the way. So part of this is to teach others the lessons that you've learned along the way. And I'm gonna ask Robin to kind of uh, jump in here and, and maybe uh, let's kind of talk about uh, what you've learned as you've gone along in this process and where we are today. So um, Jen, it's, when you describe this, I think you describe it extremely accurate, the entire disease and the process of which your child is going through and certainly what you're going through. It's like standing in the deep woods with no map or trail and you take a few steps forward and then you, that's not the way. Let's take a step back and then go to the left. And there are, there are no manuals and it's um, every family deals with it differently because every situation is different, but they're all in crisis. And I watched the crisis sure. that you were in and I felt deeply for what you, how you were trying to get out of the woods. And um, I think that your love and your commitment to your child or your children is um, unflappable. And I, I think I'd like to kind of understand what, what is their role in their recovery? I see your role and you, um, and you obviously have, um, taken a lot on, I, I guess I kind of want to know what their role is. Um, well, clearly, because both of my children are, are still in and out of recovery, unfortunately, I'm not sure that anyone is, is well aware of what their role is, mm. um, including myself. I think that my brain is untainted, if you will. My brain um, is not under the influence of opioids, so that I think I think, you know, just with my age and and just, you know, living life experience, I, I think I have maybe a, a clearer path than they do. Um, but I'm not sure any of us know what their role is. Mm. Um, it's clearly not strong enough yet. Um, or perhaps they would be in recovery and, and, and successfully in recovery and, and we'd have some good days mm. and years and months under our belt. Um, so I think as that mother-parent um, experienced life person, I have to take the, the stronger role. Um, now, ask me that on a different day, um, and I might not have the same answer because it is quite a journey, and it, it changes like the wind blows. Um, you never know what to expect. You know, we, we kind of joked around for a while and, and called Skylar the hurricane because when he would come home, you hold on and you do the best you can and it's almost like brace yourself the hurricane's coming and he kind of whips around the house and i think you saw some of that in the trade mm -hmm. and, and you just brace yourself until the wind dies down and the hurricane goes away so that's kind of the the role that we've taken as parents and then you know depending on 
the actual position of each child and, and where they are in their journey towards recovery, it changes as well. So when they're not under the influence, when they've gone through detox, when they are um, practicing recovery, their role is very strong, fighting for their life. They're working every day. But when they're deep in the throes of addiction, um, I think that most folks who struggle are doing good to keep breathing without using. You just can't go much further mm-hmm. than that. Uh, I think you put that uh, very well. So with that in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this hurricane that you have in your life right now. And I wanted to know how you and your husband are taking care of yourselves because you need the resilience and clarity and consistency in order to navigate the storm of addiction. And, um, you know, when we take care of ourselves, we're much better equipped to manage all the negative feelings. And then we we tend not to break down or confront or become hostile or detached as, as we know these are counterproductive and for the child and the parent feels worse for losing control and for saying things they might regret. So I just wanted to find out what you're doing to take care of yourself so that this hurricane doesn't knock you for a loop. Um, I will tell you not near enough, the hurricane knocks us for a loop every time the hurricane comes through. You know, you can board up your windows, you can hunker down, but you are still going to weather that storm. And you try as parents to uh, learn from each storm, which we've done. You know, I kind of think to myself all the time, I'm tired of learning lessons. I'm ready for some smooth sailing. I'm tired of learning lessons. Um, and, And each time that that either one of my kids are, are practicing recovery or, or doing I, I'm afraid to enjoy it because you're just always waiting for that hurricane to come back. Um, so I don't want to paint a picture that my life is miserable because by no means is it miserable, but it is a difficult one. I will tell you that. So you know that you didn't cause this, you can't control it, and you certainly can't cure it. So I wanted to find out what, yeah, what is your role when it's allowing you to uh, take on all these negative emotions and all the, you know, changing your life in such a, an enormous way. What is it that you think your role is? How can you change this or influence their change? I, I don't know that I have the power to influence or, or change the, the path or the journey. Um, again, I I probably um, would or if I would practice more self-care, mm-hmm. but there's such a disconnect between your head and your heart, as you all probably well know. Um, it, it's almost like I know I didn't cause it. I know I can't control it, and I know I can't change it, but I'm going to try. And so you kind of get in this, again, hamster wheel of insanity almost, and whether you know it mm-hmm. um, you're there, and you're dealing with it. Yeah. Um, I would be doing very well if I practice more self-care, but tell my heart that. My head knows it. My heart doesn't get it. Pagan, I want to thank you for uh, your intro to episode one for us. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about episode one of The Trade? What I would say about episode one is that um, hopefully the first episode sort of uh, gives you a taste of our storytelling and sort of our, our real commitment to taking people inside the lives of people who are struggling with the epidemic and, and a real emphasis on their humanity, you know, and hopefully it gives people a chance to, um, to see them with more empathy and understanding. 
Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 production on The Trade, the Showtime docu-series revealing the grim realities of the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the poppy growers, addicts and their families, cartel bosses, and law enforcement. Please join us for the next episode, where once again we'll be joined by The Trade executive producer, Pagan Harleman, who will introduce episode two and the backstory behind it, followed by a discussion with the creators of three new innovative programs that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover Two Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.